I mean, I still have imposter syndrome um, and I still, you know, and, and it, 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 it often, you know, it'll never leave. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say. It's follow your heart. Um, and if that's what you really would feel like doing um, and that you feel that there are things that you would like to do in research, then just do them. That's what I would suggest. Neurology as a medical specialty has a reputation for being difficult and intimidating. Becoming one seems even more so. At Tease Neuro, we try to make neurology accessible and interesting for everyone. In this episode, we speak to Professor David Byrne, Honorary Professor of Movement Disorder at the RBI and President of the Association of British Neurologists, only to find that even he can sometimes feel a touch of the imposter syndrome many of us struggle with. My name is Lou Wiblin and I'm a neurologist based in Teesside. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Professor Byrne as much as I did. The topic of today's podcast is research in other animals, is research for everyone. So thank you everybody for uh, tuning in. Um, this is a podcast on research and other animals, flexible working title. And it's uh, my great pleasure today to introduce uh, Professor David Byrne. And he's gonna chat to us about his experiences in research. And hopefully he's gonna demystify it for us. So just a little introduction. Uh, Professor David Byrne is a professor of movement disorder at the RVI in Newcastle, pro-vice-chancellor of Newcastle University, and the president of the Association of British Neurologists, and that's just a start of the term. He has held and currently holds a range of other posts. And I think probably one of your most impressive achievements is tolerating me as a very green MD student. So thank you very much. Um, so I think probably as a way of starting off, um, would it be possible to just give us a whistle-stop tour of your career? It would indeed. Thanks very much for having me, Lou, and thanks for the kind introduction. And hello, everyone. It's really, I can't see you all, but I can see your names. And uh, um, I hope you've got something nice to drink in front of you as you're about to endure the next 55 minutes. That'll be great. Oh, my goodness. We've got somebody join us now. I see Neil Archibald to ensure that their play is done. Um, so, yeah, a quick potted history. So you can tell from the accent that I'm from the area. Um, I managed to get myself into um, to Oxford for my my sort of preclinical three years. That was seventy nine to eighty two, and the lure of the northeast proved too much. So I came back up here to do clinical medicine eighty two to eighty five, and I was house officer as it was then for a year. Uh, the RVI and the Freeman, and then got on the SHO general medical rotation, um, and I knew really I wanted to do neurology from a pretty early stage. To be honest, in medical school. Um, uh, I, I was really blown away by the lectures, actually. I thought they were just inspirational. Um, David Bates and Neil Cartledge were just brilliant lecturers, and they fired me up. So after doing a special study project on motor neuron disease, I know Tim Williams would be very happy with that. You had him, I think, a previous week. Um, I decided to do neurology, did an SHO job in that, and then I thought, well, it would be quite nice to get a bit of perspective and to sort of try something somewhere else. So I got down... Fortunate enough to get um, on the house, as they call it, at Queen Square, to be an SHO there. And then moved over to the Hammersmith for, as registrar. And whilst I was there, um, I got the opportunity to do a research project, which I never in my million, wildest dreams actually would have thought that I would have done. And that was in um, PET scanning 
in people with Parkinson's and looking at um, the dopaminergic system of twins, both identical and non-identical twins, amongst other things. And that was with a, a guy called David Brooks, um, who was my supervisor, and Brackets, it ironically, is now back in Newcastle leading our PET uh, MRI program up here, uh, close brackets. So that was my research experience. And whilst I was there, because of David's subspecialty interest, I ended up going out to Ealing Hospital to do a movement disorder clinic. And obviously, that fed some of the research and fed my clinical interest in, in movement disorders. So from there, um, I got a call from Newcastle to say a senior registrar job was coming up. Um, back in those days, senior registrar uh, jobs were like the proverbial rocking horse uh, doo-doos. So um, it wasn't to be uh, taken lightly that. So I decided after losing a holiday in Austria, um, you know, agonising, do I stay in London? Do I try to come back to Newcastle to go for the latter? And was fortunate enough to get the SR job. So did that for a couple of years, started at the general as it was, and then back down to the RBI. And then again, another rarity came up, a consultant job. Um, and that was one that linked between the RBI and Durham, uh, Dryburn as it was. And it was what some of you may remember, Archie will remember, was what we used to call an A plus B job. So it was mainly A, which was NHS. And Technically, there were some B in there, which was sort of senior lecturer or honorary senior lecturer sessions. Bottom line was it was just flat out clinical, flat out clinical, going down to Durham twice a week, um, doing really busy. I was the only neurologist going down there. So clinics, consults and so on and so forth. Um, and then I'd set up a movement disorder service in, in Newcastle with a, a young Parkinson nurse, uh, called Trish McGee, who's still working as a nurse, as you know, uh, at the RBI, and she's just been outstanding. And um, I think that after doing a lot of stuff, not probably terribly well for a few years, including dabbled a little bit of private practice, dabbled a bit of medical legal, um, I kind of got the feeling there must be a bit more to life than this. And I, I used to go away to meetings back in the days when you could travel, and back in the days where Drug companies seemed to have a bit of money and were pleased to take people away who might prescribe the odd drug. And, and I saw people presenting, and I, I know it sounds terrible, but I used to think to myself, I think I could do better than that. And so I had a, I had a, 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 a crack at um, doing a bit of research and started off uh, with a grant from the PSP Association, and that was Uma Nath, my first day uh, uh, PhD or MD student doing the epidemiology of um, PSP and it kind of went on from there and I realized I really liked the research and so I guess did what I call reverse osmosis which is starting to move a bit away from the, the NHS stuff trying to create a bit more space for academia and that led to me taking a job in Sunderland um, and doing a movement disorder service in RIAB, set, it, set that up in RIAB as well as doing the one in Newcastle, because it meant I only had to go to Sunderland one day a week as opposed to two days a week to Durham. And on the day that I freed up, I was able to do some, some research there. And so I was able to get involved doing uh, work with Ian McKeith and Elaine Perry and Robert Perry in uh, Dementia with Lewy Bodies and Parkinson's Dementia. And that was really the start of what I suppose became my USP for research, which was very much more getting involved in the dementia associated with Parkinson's. Um, that led to me 
uh, getting heavily involved with the Movement Disorder Society, actually, and being involved in various guidelines and, and what have you with them about Parkinson's and dementia. Um, that was a real eye-opener, I have to say. Um, I had a string of outstanding PhD and MD students. Archie being on the call, I have to name-check him being one of them, um, but he was pretty autonomous and didn't need much uh, input from me, I have to say. Um, Naomi Warren was another. And as Lou said, she was... Uh, one of the later ones, and was again very, very low maintenance. Uh, very, very green. <laughs> so that's really kind of that's kind of it. And then, of course, in amongst all of that, and it's a whole different story. Don't want to talk the whole time before you get on the questions. But I kind of started to get uh, sucked in on various management and directorship jobs, things like the Clinical Aging Research Unit, that led to me becoming director of Institute for Aging and Health and thence on to Institute of Neuroscience, and thence on to the Faculty Pro Vice-Chancellor job, which I've been doing for the last three and a bit years. Actually, it's getting on for three and a half years, and that time's just flown. So that's it, Lou, in an absolute <laughs> blur. <laughs> Hope you all caught that. So, I mean, you're active in a lot of different organisations, and you've been a clinician, manager, and director. What specific things about research made you get up in the morning and I know you get up very early in the morning <laughs> um I think I know it sounds really cheesy but a lot of the re I mean the research that I did wasn't I don't think particularly clever um a, a lot of it was really driven by unmet patient need and I think those of you and there'll be pretty well everybody I think on this call who've seen people with Parkinson's and have seen the devastation that can be caused by the slippery slope of cognitive decline um, would realise, at least it would I think like me, that it's the probably the biggest unmet need in that condition and so that's really uh, something that I thought would be really worthwhile trying to address. Um, and I guess the other thing, to be honest, is partly sort of stochastic, partly opportunistic in terms of what you've got available to you at the time, who you've got available to you at the time. So, you know, colleagues like Lynn Rochester, who who was just a you know, wonderful friend and colleague with a really interesting gait, you know, it then became not a million miles of a leap of faith to say, well, let's look at cognition and gait because that would be a really interesting thing. And that sort of fitted very well in some of the theories that we developed on postural instability, gait difficulty, um, phenotype in, in Parkinson's predisposing towards dementia. So, so yeah, that, that, that was it really, motivated by, by the patients actually. And it, it always has been, to be honest. And I think your unit and everyone in it, at least when I was there, were, were very motivated by patients and patient contact. And, and I think the patients really enjoyed coming, which was why it was a nice place to do research. Um, you, I picked up on a couple of things you said there. One was you said that the research you did it, or, or that you do isn't particularly clever. And I think a lot of people are so frightened of research. They have a research phobia because clever people do research, uh, not people like me and this, you know, I can't really get involved with that. I'm frightened of the very, you know, high functioning, ambitious people that do it. And I've, you know, I've got no chance of getting into that. What would you, what would you say to those people? And are there, are there, is there a sort of basic orientation you could give them just in terms of the, the words we use and the sort of, I think I've used the term researchees before that can be a bit impenetrable. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is, for goodness sakes, don't don't be intimidated at all. Um, I mean, I still have imposter syndrome, um, and I still, you know, and, and it, 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 it often, you know, it'll never leave. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say. It's follow your heart, um, and if that's what you really would feel like doing, um, and that you feel that there are things that you would like to do in research, then just do them. That's what I would suggest. And actually, th there is something to be said for, I think, being a really great clinician and to try to, you know, perfect your art in terms of taking a really great history and doing a good examination and capturing lots of data. And there was a phrase that kept going through my head for years and years and years, and that is patience of power. And that means that not only are they, if you like, determining the agenda, willfully or otherwise, because of the problems that they have, but in a different sense, having great cohorts of patients that are well phenotyped uh, is actually the driver for much of the great research that goes on. I mean, the clever shinyometers and boxes that people use, you know, if you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out. I know it's a hackneyed phrase, but it's absolutely true. So putting great phenotypic data in is into studies, be it imaging studies, genetic studies, whatever, is going to pay dividends. Um, so, you know, I think that means the, the, the link of that is that anybody can do research because all of you on the call are clinicians, and I dare say there are some really outstanding clinicians uh, either currently or in the making amongst everybody tuned in. Now, there may be some of you on the um, uh, call who have got some experience of research, and I'll think just to briefly sort of do the research ease as, as, as Lou's referring to. Funnily enough, I mean, <laughs> one of the more painful processes of Pro Vice Chancellor was I decided to do a restructure of the Faculty of Medical Sciences. Um, we needed to because our research performance was was dipping away. Um, and it's very simple, but I mean I just condensed three, seven institutes into three. And the three institutes are effectively the three key pillars of um, of research, if you will. Um, and I think I would like you to imagine a donut and imagine you're starting at the donut at 12 o'clock. And if you go from 12 o'clock clockwise round the first third of the clock, that's what you would call, I, I, I don't like to call it basic because it actually implies a slightly derogatory way, call it discovery science. That's what I still think is the clever, the clever stuff, but because I don't do it and I don't fully understand all of it either. But it's basically, it's the basic techniques, the discovery techniques where you might be looking at how um, a cell uses certain processes, how receptors match onto certain hormones or certain other ligands, drug discovery type work, basic immunology, you know, T cell subsets and so on and so forth. That then feeds into the, the second third, if you like, of the donut going around clockwise, which is translational. So that's kind of pulling the discovery signs through into, into, into animals, but then into man. So the first into man stuff is something that we do really well in the Northeast in Newcastle. Um, and that's often working with industry. Obviously, after you've checked out that the drug's not going to be, or, or, or a product is not going to be absolutely 
toxic and, and, and poorly tolerated. Um, then you start getting on to the really interesting stuff about comparing efficacy against, say, placebo, checking mechanisms of working, and you might use, say, blood markers to look at that or imaging tests and so on and so forth. And of course, once then the drug seems to have a benefit and it's acceptable toxicity, you can upscale it from what we then call a phase two study into a phase three study, which is often multi-center um, and involving a, often usually the, the new drug and a plus, uh, versus a placebo and sometimes an active comparator. Now, if some of you are sort of wanting to get into research, this is how I got into research, by actually doing drug trials phase three trials, because I had lots of patients and there were drug trials going and the drug companies were very appreciative because they were obviously wanting to get people in quickly and to target. So that worked really well. And that means that you start to build relationships with the companies. And then that means that you can start to help guide them in terms of maybe designing new studies and so on and so forth. You get your name onto publications, etc. And then just for completeness there, it wants the drugs to market. You might want to check how it's doing after it's been marketed. And they're sometimes called phase four or post-marketing studies. And then back to our donut, if you look then at the final third, taking us back around to midnight or 12 o'clock, you've got what we call the Population Health Science Institute. So that's very much seeing um, health uh, in the community. That's looking at, um, if you like, big data sets off and epidemiology. What's the effect of a particular intervention at a mass level? What about new effects of, say, changes in school meals on, on children, obesity, and so on and so forth? Um, and the reason I do it that way rather than more conventional, maybe three pillars going from left to right for discovery, translational, and population health is that if you think about it, Population health data can actually feed hypotheses back into discovery science. So it causes a, a virtual loop. So that's, broadly speaking, the three domains that you may want to sort of think about going into research. And it's fair to say that most of our clinicians are located in the Translational and Clinical Research Institute that Andy Blameyer heads up. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And we were talking just before everyone came into the call there about the um, the sort of well the sort of enhancement, the up upsurge of, of research since uh, coronavirus has come about, and how it's almost squeezed or condensed that donut. So we're sort of running around the donut very very quickly now, and more and more people are getting involved. Which I wonder if this period will get more and more clinicians, junior and more senior, into research. Um, judging on studies like the recovery trial, which has just been taken up so avidly in so many sites. Uh, I think that's a really, it's a great point that Lou, and I, and I think you're right. I think, I think the other thing that will come out of this, and I know it's going to come out of it actually, because I've had some communication with an IHR about it, is that it's proven that you don't have to have such horrendous delays in getting studies through from the device devising the protocol right through to actually getting the first patient into the study. Um, it used to be and was such a laborious process, lots of transactional um, malaise. And 
you know, things like the recovery trial, which you've done brilliantly in, and we were talking about that, and it's wonderful to see that, um, and, and, and how quickly those trials have got up and running. The NIHR are going to learn from that, and I would hope that going forward, non-COVID-related trials will, will also see a benefit in being sped through. But I think that, you know, so for example, if one of you on this call um, wants to get involved in a phase three drug study, um, you, you for that, for your site, so for example, if Lou, if Lou was, was, was leading the recover trial in South Tees, she would be known as the principal investigator for that, for that site. Now, the recovery trial, for the sake of argument, let's supposing it's been led through Imperial, the, the person who's leading the trial overall, and who's, if you like, got designated overall responsibility for design, conduct, and reporting of the study, would be what we call a chief investigator. So there'd be one chief investigator for the UK, and then a principal investigator in each of the, the hospital sites that's running the, uh, the trial. And the PI has site responsibility for the day-to-day -day running of the study so it's an important role and it's something that, that that you know several of you in the future may may well be um, and of course recover is a great example because it's what we call a CTIM which is a controlled trial of an investigational medicinal product and I guess if you've got any time at all to um, you know devote to this uh, the, the, the thing to spend most time on that trips you up is the is an excuse the phrase but it's the piss okay, the patient information sheet, because if you, if you get that wrong, the ethics committee will tear you asunder. Um, so you've really, the more you can involve the public and patients in devising your studies, if you're doing it from scratch, um, this is, I mean, on, on the assumption that you're devising the study, all of this is, if, if of course it's provided to you by a chief investigator and a company who incidentally are usually what we call a sponsor, of the trial then you don't have to worry about that um, but if you were devising a study from scratch um, as as for instance Lou did and, and and Archie on the call had to then that that information you present to the patient to get their consent and probably consent document being signed uh, and countersigned by the investigator and file is about the one of the most important key documents source documents that that you could ever have and where most people come unstuck if there are audits and the like by the MHRA and um, that that document is absolutely critical so um, yeah I mean there's a I've managed to throw in lots of sort of research terms there to try and debunk it as well uh, Liv. Um, I suppose we should point out as well that um, I wrote a paper with Prof Byrne on some of these terms so after the podcast especially some of our SHO and F1 uh, colleagues on the call if they want to take a look at that I'll send a link um, yeah I'm just um, when you talked uh, when you talked a bit about um, the opportunities that research gives you other than producing research I remember that you said something right at the beginning of mine when I was worried about publishing papers and I was worried about um, pisses and all, and all the rest of it and you said something like I can't remember what it was that you should really take this time and use it to um, refine your clinical skills and refine your interests because this is time you'll never have back again. And that was really important. Actually, it, it wasn't so much the papers that you write and the, the, the PubMed citations that you get, but you get sort of unadulterated exposure to patients with 
possibly rare conditions that you are interested in. And I, and I think that's under-recognized, I think particularly for clinical research um, in, in old money, the, the sort of uh, yeah. the third part, the third, third of your donut. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I look back on my research experience in London and it was, they were two of the happiest years of my life. Um, it was, it was, they were absolutely great. Um, I think, I'm trying to think, I think I did the odd locum to try and make ends meet, but um, I did not do regular on call. Um, and it was just great fun. Um, you know, you're in a different world and it gave you more thinking time. It allows you to be able to think in more detail about a specific area. And for a brief moment, I guess there's an Andy Warhol quote in here somewhere, but you know, you're the expert in a very small area for a very short time, often. Um, and that was a kind of a nice, a nice feeling. And of course, the other thing is, although there are notable exceptions, that what you end up doing as your research often dictates or colours where you go to as a subspecialty interest going forward in your career. Um, so it's worth thinking about what, what area you move into because um, it's not absolute. I mean, I'll give you a real classic example of, a, of an exception, and that's um, Prof um, Dame Pam Shaw in Sheffield. Her MD, um, when she was at the RVI, was actually in the complications of um, coronary artery by, uh, bypass, uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, and the neurological complications that ensued from cardiopulmonary bypass. And she got a very, very good thesis out of that. But of course, everybody knows her now for her work in motor neuron disease, which she kind of reinvented herself at a later date to go into MND. But somebody like myself is the other end of the spectrum where my MD was very much in movement disorders and that stuck with me and that became my sort of USP if you like albeit in a slightly different way uh, with the dementia angle um, subsequently um, and I guess the true the same is true of you Lou I think and also of Archie in terms of that you know coloring coloring your future research and subspecialty interest I should say and I suppose Archie, I think I might be putting words in Archie's mouth, but he's on mute so I can say whatever I want. Um, we both um, joined you to do some research just before we finished our registrar training. I hadn't done any before that, so um, was was very confused and discombobulated when I arrived and you were very good to me. Um, but we came towards the end of our clinical training. People do jump out of clinical training at many different points, as medical students do intercalated degrees, I'm a graduate entrant, so my experience is slightly different, uh, between their SHO and registrar years. Um, some people post-CCT increasingly, I think. Do you have any advice for the people in the chat about when is a good time or when it might be a natural jumping off point to do research and the sort of research that they might choose to do? Well, that's a, yeah, it's an interesting question is that. Um, I mean, obviously one of the things that we've been pretty taxed with in the ABN is the shape of training and the effect that that might have. And I think before anybody asks a question about that, it, it's fair to say that, you know, we're not letting, if you like, the research angle drop at all um, as, as how shape of training may impact thereon. Um, because 
historically, neurology has always had a very strong academic component. And I think it's also fair to say as well that um, once upon a time, you probably wouldn't have got a consultant job without a higher degree. It was absolutely accepted um, that you needed a PhD or an MD to get a consultancy. Now, times have changed and you certainly could get a, a job now in neurology as a consultant without having a, a PhD or an MD. And I'm deeply discomforted by the fact that somebody should feel that they have to do research for that reason, where they really don't feel that they have an affinity for research. I think that's the first thing to say. So anybody on this call, if they, they don't kind of like what they're hearing and they don't like the idea that they have to do research just for the hell of it, then please, please don't feel compelled to have to do that. And we might come on to some alternative skills and areas um, uh, shortly that, that you absolutely could, could develop in, which would be absolutely just as valuable. Um, so I think that it's very much a personal choice. Now, I always remember hearing a lecture by the late, great David Marsden at Queen Square, who reckoned that people who knew they wanted to be clinical academics kind of just knew it from a very early stage and sort of generally headed off down that line. I, I, I believe just about everything he said, but I, that one I'm, I'm not 100% sure on because I, I think I would count myself as being a bit of a waverer for a while, if I'm honest. I mean, I did the MD because I found it interesting and because, as I say at the time, I absolutely knew I needed an MD or a PhD to get a consultancy and I just wouldn't be at the races without it. Um, and then I went through a fair fallow period of not doing any research really at all because the clinical load just dominated. And I was very happy doing that for a while. Um, those of you who are sort of absolutely keen on doing research, then there is an academic track which the NIHR and others have promoted. And that's kind of, um, at least in, I'm going to use now, if you like, uh, current money, um, uh, at least just about current money in terms of years of specialty training. So you've got your academic clinical fellowships, which are sort of classically one years one to three. And that's where you'd spend 25% of your time doing research, either as a block or part of time a week. And that's very much getting yourself maybe beyond publication, but getting yourself uh, a project which you may be actually applying for yourself as a fellowship uh, to be able to do a PhD or an MD. Um, and then the idea of the academic track is that the ACF feeds forward into an academic clinical lecturer, which is at the kind of years four to six classically, um, and, 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 and is 50% time to research as opposed to the 25% of the ACF. Um, and the academic clinical lecture is very much more, therefore, for the more advanced kind of postdoctoral, as we call it, post-PhD type of researcher, um, who probably may, but not, not always, unfortunately, but often will then have a chance to, to sort of go through and become a university employee as a senior lecturer with some honorary uh, hospital NHS trust sessions and you know become what we call an independent researcher so that if you like is the sort of very much classic academic track for people who absolutely know that from the get-go and are fortunate enough to be able to get over the various hurdles and interviews and what have you for those ACF and ACL posts and there's a fair bit of luck I would still argue involved in quite a lot of all of that 
But equally, it's never too late to get involved in research. Um, and those of you, you know, may end up getting through to consultants in, in different shapes or forms, may fancy doing some research along the lines of outlined, like doing drug trials, uh, observational studies, and so on. Um, and that's absolutely possible. Um, and, and there's pretty well all points in between are also possible in terms of going off and doing the research. I mean, you know, ultimately, as long as you play a straight bat with, for example, your regional, uh, especially training coordinator to, you know, you can't just disappear out of program, as Lou would say, because, I mean, that was a, an issue. I think I remember at some point, Lou, you know, that you've got to play a straight bat because, you know, somebody's got to do your work while you're stepping out if you're going to do full-time research. I mean, some of the other alternatives that people have done is to um, have a lot of patients, be involved in doing studies, and because the studies bring money in, um, often if they're sponsored or their trust is hosting the study, the trust benefits from the money. Um, and so what can be, uh, if you like, bargained for is that you drop a clinical session or a direct, a direct PA and you end up getting a research-funded session, and sometimes, although they're harder to come by now, the Clinical Research Network can give a, a, a clinical research session, um, which allows you to do trials and so on in, in that time. So there's, it's multiple different ways of getting involved, Lou. And for anybody on the call that isn't really convinced yet, maybe some of our more, more junior listeners, if if they weren't thinking of making academic medicine something that they were aiming for with a straight bat, as you might say, but maybe could be persuaded or, or might think about doing some research at some point, how would you sell it to them? What skills do you think research has given you as a, as a clinician and, and has helped you in other parts of your practice? Um, I mean, I think research definitely gives you depth. Because a lot of the time, when you're when you're when you're doing a clinical job, you're often seeing an awful lot of, of very different conditions. You're, some of it's intuitive, some of it's probability based, some of it is reactive, and you'll go and check out something. If 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 you if you've got an interest in research, it, it means you have to really know the area, and so you have to do quite a lot of reading around it, and that gives you a real depth, which usually you'll find people within your locale or even a lot further afield just don't have that awareness of. It makes you able to read a paper um, and actually be more critical of it and not accept it at face value. Um, I still don't think I'm particularly good at that, but, but certainly people do get away with murder in terms of some of the things they put in the literature. And, and I'm afraid to say, even in some of the higher powered journals that you'll have come across, like Nature and Science, there's been studies done looking at the reproducibility, for example, of data. And um, I'm afraid that an awful lot of studies are not necessarily reproducible. So having that critical eye and being able to look at a paper um, or a set of facts, uh, or even just knowing basic statistical techniques um, or when to apply a statistical technique is, is really valuable, I would suggest, in a lot of the sort of extended existence that you have as a, as a, as a clinician. Um, and, and, it, and I think the other thing as well is 
and this this is definitely true that David Marsden said, um, and this was actually in the same lecture, um, that there is no way I would suggest that in this life now, particularly as a, as a consultant neurologist, you can just see patients morning, noon, and night. You have to have a different string to your bow to keep yourself sane. Um, and that could be management, it could be teaching, it could be private practice, he, he gave the example. It could be being part-time and going playing on the golf course or having a better work-life balance, being part-time and doing something else. But I would suggest doing five days a week or more if you're on call and just doing patients, NHS patients, morning to night, I think you could suffer a bit of burnout as, it, as things stand. And that's the nice thing about research is that it does give you a very different... It, I used to do research and then would come back and enjoy seeing the patients. And then I would sort of, you know, the patients could sometimes you'd have a tricky clinic or whatever. And then you'd really enjoy going back into research to have a break. So one fed the other. It was, it was really great. Well, I think you probably persuaded everybody. Um, so let's just say that um, a proportion of the listeners have decided that they, they definitely want to do some research and they want to get into it. Maybe they, they don't have an, an ACF or they haven't, they haven't been one. What, what are the nuts and bolts about getting into a research project, let's say a, a, a master's, a research master's or, or an MD or PhD? What would they practically have to do? Or more importantly, who would they have to find to allow them to do that? Yeah. Um, so again, some of this boils down to sort of stochastic. <laughs> some of it boils down to luck. Um, I think the key thing is, is that you're all, firstly, well, actually, there's one thing to say, and that is that getting a really good, uh, dedicated researcher, be it an MD, be it a PhD, is from a PI's point of view, and I'm using that now in the university sense, so like an independent researcher uh, perspective, um, you'd be like gold dust because getting somebody suitable for to do a research study who's going to really go the extra mile, who's personable, who's not you know, going to need an awful lot of oversight necessarily, um, and who's really in, likes the area they're working in, they're not easy to come by. And you'll see adverts out there for, for people, um, often where there really is nobody in mind, hoping that somebody who could be on this call might want to be involved and be tempted to do research. Now, the next point, which is pretty damned obvious, is that if you hate, if you really dislike seeing people with MS, well, you could argue why you're doing neurology in the first place, but if that was not an area of subspecialism that you, you particularly enjoyed, but you, you could get by doing it in, say, general neurology, you wouldn't go off and do research in MS because somebody was offering an MS uh, research project because you're probably not going to enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy doing the hands-on stuff, you're going to absolutely loathe doing the writing up of your thesis, for example, or even a paper. So my advice certainly would be to sort of regard your clinical exposure as a kind of a shop floor experience and go around and taste the sweets and see which ones you like and um, think, well, yeah, I quite like that one. And of course, bearing in mind what I said before, that could end up being your sort of future subspecialty area. So if you feel there's an affinity there for you, then what you should then try and do 
and obviously the best thing I'm guessing unless you're very mobile and there could be some of you on this call who are not necessarily tied to the region um, is to find somebody uh, who is a good clinical academic in that area who's got a bit of a track record do your homework check them out you know what's their publication output like chat to maybe some of their current students or previous students have they got a record of looking after people well do they get you through your your, your, your thesis all right and so on and so forth and then try and arrange to have a chat with them and as I say most people would take your hand off to have a chat with you um, as and when an opportunity presented itself for funding um, knowing that they could have somebody very keen and interested to come and work with them so it, it don't, don't, I suppose in a nutshell don't regard it as a one-way ticket that they're doing you a favour you you may well be doing them a favour as well and I know one word you used at the beginning of your intro was opportunistic and I, I think to some extent the stars all really need to align to some extent but from my perspective, I would say that the thing is the supervisor. If you, if you find the right supervisor and if you find the right supervisor, you'll be able to come up with the right idea. And I think you're 50% there then. They, they'll, they'll have a little black book and yeah. yeah no, I, no, I agree. There's, there's definitely a chemistry there, Lou. You're right. It's like, it, it is like, it is a relationship and, um, you know, I was very, very fortunate, um, had some really great people. There's not one person really that I would pick out that was, you know, particularly difficult or awkward or high maintenance, anything like that. And um, it, you you become friends. And, and, and I think it's true what Andrew Lees told me, who was a mentor of mine down at, at University College, uh, is that, you know, you end up getting more pleasure out of seeing how people have got on in their careers than actually what you end up doing yourself a lot of the time. Uh, it, it's very rewarding. So, I mean, you've talked about other strings to the bow than, than research other than um, clinical medicine. Um, and I know you have a, a wealth of, of different things that you've achieved, but specifically a, a lot of the registrars of the call will go to a consultant job, which is primarily um, clinical rather than academic, although it might have an academic component. Some of them might have to build up a new service or overhaul a service that's, you know, become slightly behind the times. And, and you, when, when you set up your service, it was, it was revolutionary in doing, doing things that I think was uh, Trish, one of the first PD nurses, I think, was that right? Oh, oh yes. I mean, Tr Trish McGee was, the, the, uh, in terms of the country, she would have been absolutely one of the vanguard of the of the wave of PD nurses. Yeah, that would have been back in nineteen. Oh gosh, now anyway, early nineties, I think. I'm not going to say where I was then. Um, <laughs> but but the what 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 would you your it, with your experience of setting up a, a very new, very revolutionary service? for someone going into a department and, and building things up anew, what sort of guidance could you, could you give? Yeah, so there's two approaches really. I mean, the first is if you really love a department that you're working in and you could think, I really want to stay here, then the key thing there is going to say, well, what's the complementarity that you could bring to that department? Because there's no point in coming into James Cook necessarily and doing 
movement disorders because now they've got you know at least two probably more really great people on movement disorders and maybe maybe that wouldn't be the next up on the pile that you, you would want somebody to fill in that space so you know you, you perhaps need to be a bit strategic there in your thinking on the flip side of it if you think how you know I, i'm not bothered where i get my job i would just actually really prefer to do a subspecialism in x because i really love x um, and there's something about that that I really like. Now, the the odds actually in both cases, or both scenarios, might be that you're not necessarily exposed to X, that subspecialty interest, where you are. Um, and so I would suggest that even if you don't particularly want to do, you know, research and search, you should try and angle to get some time out in a, in a national or, or an international centre of excellence in your chosen or wannabe subspecialty area because that would give you such marketability and background experience uh, you would import ideas and and that would make you a very valuable asset to a, a department that you were then moving to now it might be while you're in that department uh, wherever it is that you might get some output some publications and so on but for example why not see what databases they've got and how they set things up and what, what information they capture? What blood tests do they do? What protocols and patient assessment do they do? Kind of obvious stuff. But if you're keeping a little diary of all of that and you get that from at least one centre, you've got that then tucked up your sleeve that you can then execute when you get your, your consultant job in, in that subspecialty area. So, you know, I think... So, and I think as well, the other thing is if you're really, I mean, it depends how contrived and how sort of looking over the hill you want to be. Because, you know, at the moment, if you look at some of the specialism areas that, you know, the NIHR, for example, are wanting to invest in, the classic one is multimorbidity uh, at the moment. Dementia's always in there and still is. Um, and mental health, of course, give, and there's going to be a tsunami of that probably post-COVID. So, you know, you could think to yourself, well, you know, what about trying to think outside the box and become a sort of, you know, neurogeriatrician? What about trying to become somebody with a bit of an interest in hanging into the, the medical specialties and being particularly good at polypharmacy, multi, multiple medical conditions and neurology? Um, and trying to sort of read the rooms, if you will, about what we could be coming down the line. Because those things are going to be with us for years and years to come and become more prevalent so it depends how sort of strategic slash contrived slash scheming you want to be about it but they are they are sort of some ideas you might consider as well as well as well i think from my perspective um it may be that you are interested in something and <laughs> it's very easy to be considered an expert because nobody else has done it or maybe wants to do it so my interest is in palliative care as it relates to neurology and it just hasn't really been done with, with the exception of um, a couple of folk. There's uh, someone in Scotland locally, we have a, a, an excellent palliative care consultant who has an interest in neurology. So the, the my mirror image. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's something to think about, you know, you could, <laughs> it could be very easy to be an expert because no one else does it. But that was part, but that was actually part of the attraction, if you like, of having you as an MD student, Lou, because you, you, that was a really, 
to me, that was an incredibly exciting and very unique combination that I'd never come across before. So for me, it shot a very, shone a very different perspective on doing groundbreaking work in PSP and MSA in a palliative care sense. And that's exactly the point I suppose I was making that, you know, you've, you've kind of grasped that idea and in a way, you didn't want to let go your interest in palliative care, nor did you want to do that in neurology, so why not put the two together? And that sort of creativity, I think there's always a space for that. There's always a place for that, actually. And I, th I think as well, um, it, was a, it was a really nice opportunity to, because there was lots of patient contact in that, the sort of patient contact that hmm. when you have an interest in something like palliative care and there'll be other things you know maternal neurology things like that there are certain complex patient groups that you just feel like you don't get enough time and you don't get enough scope to take an interest in their problems and, and a time in research to allow you to develop a service I think is you'll never get that opportunity again really so no, no that is fair comment um for it, it may be that, that some people don't get the chance to to go further afield, maybe family um, attachments and things like that. But I suppose increasingly there are a lot of um, specialty organisations that are offering courses and or finishing schools um, from a movement disorder point of view. The the MDS or the Movement Disorder Society that you've been um, that you've had a lot of um, positions in and. The Neurology Academy, Archie has a position within the, the Parkinson's Academy. They're doing a lot of work now that would allow you to um, refine yourself without sort of going away for, for months at a time. Um, it may be that some of, the, some of the guys on the call haven't heard or aren't aware of these things. Are you happy to have a little chat about how the MDS has been doing that sort of work? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, neurology is not like it was in the past where it was, it had a dreadful reputation, if I'm honest, about, you know, being very much sort of men in grey suits and very dominated. And if you didn't get in, you know, five hours before your consultant and you didn't go home after they went, you know, then, then basically you weren't going to make it. And the euphemism was, I think you should go into a bit more general medicine, was always the kiss of death. I mean, that has changed completely now. And I'm minded of, you know, I used to go over annually to Copenhagen um, and the neurology department there was dominated by by women and they had a really refreshing attitude towards you know work-life balance and how they got things done and it it made it a very good department I mean it was a really good department in the Bishop Bia hospital so you know I think that even and you know this applies to men as well that you know you absolutely do not have to be um, thinking of oh god I can't, I've got to go away I've got to do this I've got to do that there's an awful lot you can do um, by just staying around if for example family ties here or you just don't want to go away I would absolutely urge everybody though to think like look outside you know don't don't be introvert don't don't think within the department because you will gain from experiences even if they're obtained remotely um by by looking outside and so things like the movement disorder society they do offer things like summer schools winter schools um, they have a young uh, leadership program um, the leap program um, and they are they're always keen to encourage 
young people in movement disorders, for example, uh, coming through. And there will be other society equivalents, uh, I'm sure, or just don't know them as well in other subspecialty areas. Um, you, you know, there, there are leadership programs now that are being put forward to try and help people in the NHS who might want to do management and learn those skills. And so this comes back to the point we were saying before about not feeling that you have to do research because there are other things that you could do, like doing qualifications to be a really great teacher. I mean, God knows we need good teachers. And that's some another way into the university uh, system, if you will, not through so much your research uh, side, but through your excellence in delivery of and creation of uh, novel educational offerings. So that's another thing that you might want to do. Um, so yeah, there's there's many. Uh, it, you know, you, you should just regard yourself as being in a sweet shop, and just try try the sweets and see what you like, um, and and don't be um, don't be conformist. You know, fully fully your heart and your head. I just for anyone that is interested in movement disorder the mds well i went to the summer school i was sensible i went to the summer school in venice as opposed to the winter school in london <laughs> um, and that was absolutely fantastic but i i do imagine that in the future it's just an inkling there'll be a lot more opportunity to join those courses virtually i suspect so that's yeah. something else to think about as well um so i i know we were planning to keep it very tight tonight so how do you, are you happy to take one more question, Prof? Is that all right? Absolutely, Lou, fire away. Fire away, so, I've just seen the time, yeah, it's So we like to finish these, um, well, podcasts as, the, as they'll be, by asking if you had the opportunity to speak to yourself as a younger clinician from the vantage point of all your accumulated experience, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> Um, well, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I mentioned way back that, you know, I still suffer from imposter syndrome. I mean, I, I've, I remember looking at people and, and sort of thinking, gosh, you know, I, I couldn't be like that. I couldn't do that. And it's funny enough, actually, there's, I, I guess the best way I can answer is that there's a, there's a really nice, there's a really nice lady who, um, used to come to see me in the university called Lynn Howlett. And um, she worked in what used to be called Staff Development Unit. And Lynn used to come along and see me. And um, she, uh, I, I remember vividly, I got the Institute of Neuroscience Directorship and uh, I was just sat, settled in my new office and uh, was feeling that this is it, I've made it, I'm a happy man. And she, would come up, and she came along a, a matter of only weeks after being in there and said, well, you know, Chris Day isn't going to be the Pro Vice Chancellor for, for any forever. Um, you know, have you thought about that? And I sort of said, You've got to be joking, Lynn. And and so I was asked to contribute to her um, her leaving virtual book literally last week, or actually it might have been earlier this week. Um, and you know, would you write like to write something? And I and I sort of said to Lynn, who always um helped me to see over the hill where all I could see was the kind of the foothills and the initial hillocks, if you like. And I think, so what I'm saying is that don't be frightened to set your sights high and think that you can actually achieve it and try to always look over the hill rather than just at that tussock in front of you. 
because I know you on this call, you're probably pretty tired. You probably switched on, zoned out a little bit with me droning on. Um, maybe hopefully, as I say, you've had a glass of something or a cup of tea or what have you. And you're thinking about that patient that you've seen today and you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. Um, and maybe if you can get through the next month or the weekend on call, that'll be, that'll be an achievement. But just try, just try when you get a moment of peace and solitude, just to try and think, what would I really like to be? What would I really see myself doing? What would I really aspire to do? And try and go that full hog and look over the hill. Because I honestly don't think I ever really did do that. And I've been lucky on the way, but I, I never did that. I think the, the thing that, that has surprised me is that you have imposter syndrome. I think that's, I, I just <laughs> find that incredible. Um, no, I'm afraid I do. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great hour. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure everyone on the chat has enjoyed it too. Um, so next week uh, we're doing, I think Archie is doing the podcast and he's doing paediatric neurology. Why should adult neurologists care? Um, spoiler, we should. Um, and the Zoom links will be put out for that um, later. I don't think there's any, I don't think we've got any final questions. Everybody's being eerily quiet in the chat. I'll put links out to a couple of relevant papers. And thank you again, Prof. We really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's very late. And I, no problem. I it's best been let really you get... nice, though. really nice. Really enjoyed it. And, and I wish everybody on the call the very best of, of luck. And of course, <laughs> you know, don't forget if the university can help you in any way, um, then you know, we would do our we would do our very best. Certainly, neurosciences is a very strong uh, element within the uh, the Faculty of Medical Sciences in Newcastle. Well, thank you again, and have a safe what remains of the lockdown, <laughs> and hopefully we'll meet again soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. Take care, all. Take Bye care. for now. Good night. Good night. Thank you for joining us at Tease Neuro. Please check out our other sessions on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. We are also on Twitter at @teasneuro. Our next episode features Dr. Rich Brown on paediatric neurology, what adult physicians need to know.